The following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, which originally aired February 28th of this year. How was Canada complicit in the overthrow of the democratically elected government of Haiti in 2004? How were development agencies and NGOs involved? And are there parallels between Canada's relationship with Haitian society and dealings with its own Aboriginal population? We'll hear perspectives from Haitian rights activist Roger Annis. Is the boom generated by Canada's oil sands actually having a detrimental effect on the Canadian economy? The co-author of a recent study explains why Canadians should be concerned about the bitumen cliff. And how has the presence of an African-American, Barack Obama, at the pinnacle of American power, changed the playing field for those seeking positive social change? As Black History Month comes to a close, we'll hear from activist and former Georgia Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney. On today's program, Canada's Bitumen Cliff and Haiti, nine years after the coup. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of February 28, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with some of the major news stories shaping the national and international political landscape. The 49-year-old UK man who refused to pay his TV license fee on the grounds that this would constitute financing an organization funding terrorism had his day in court last Monday. Tony Rook, appearing in front of Horsham Magistrates Court, explained that he refused to pay his TV license because, in his words, I believe the BBC, who are directly funded by the license fee, are furthering the purposes of terrorism, and I have incontrovertible evidence to this effect. Rook pointed to the BBC's reporting of the collapse of World Trade Center 7 20 minutes before it happened and the pattern of the collapse suggesting a controlled demolition as evidence the BBC covered up the facts around 9-11. Presiding District Judge Stephen Nichols disallowed Rook's video evidence, arguing it was irrelevant to the trial. He said, quote, This is not a public inquiry into 9-11. Even if I accept the evidence you say, this court has no power to create a defense in the manner which you put forward, unquote. Rook was found guilty of using an unlicensed set, given a six-month conditional discharge, and forced to pay 200 pounds in costs. That comes to us from the Daily Mail. During his upcoming official visit to Israel, U.S. President Barack Obama is expected to tell Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that a window of opportunity for a U.S. military strike on Iran will open in June if efforts to thwart Iran's nuclear program through sanctions and diplomatic means prove fruitless. In a report which aired on Israelis TV's Channel 10 last Monday, Israel, in the event of a U.S. military operation, would be asked to 
sit tight and remain on the sidelines. In addition to the Iranian nuclear issue, Obama and Netanyahu are expected during the presidential visit to discuss the Israel-Palestine conflict as well as instability in Syria and the prospects of weapons of mass destruction ending up in rogue hands. That comes to us from the Times of Israel and Associated Press. Two long-awaited reports published February 21st by the Post Carbon Institute and the Energy Policy Forum reveal that the hydraulic fracturing or fracking boom could lead to a bubble burst akin to the housing bubble burst of 2008. J. Dave Hughes, author of the Post Carbon Institute report, explained that while shale gas extraction may be at an all-time high now, and there may be large reserves technically, the production rates are subject to the law of diminishing returns, meaning that the gas is exhausted very quickly and more wells have to be drilled each year to replace the exhausted ones. Deborah Rogers, who authored the Energy Policy Forum report, explained that, quote, the recent natural gas market glut was largely affected through overproduction of natural gas in order to meet financial analysts' production tar targets. Further, leases were bundled and flipped on unproved shale fields in much the same way as mortgage-backed securities had been bundled and sold on questionable underlying mortgage assets prior to the economic downturn of 2007, unquote. At the heart of the bubble is the financial codependency between day-to-day in-field shale oil and gas economics with the, its physical limits and the economics of Wall Street, which is blind to those limits. That comes to us from the desmogblog.com. European markets were sent into a panic following the outcome of last Monday's Italian parliamentary elections, which saw a protest party inherit 25% of the votes and ultimately sabotage almost any prospect of a workable coalition. Comedian Beppe Grillo's Five Star Movement, an anti-Euro, anti-austerity party, garnered 25.6% of the popular vote. Pierre Luigi Barsani's Democratic Party-led center-left alliance received 29.5% of the vote, followed by Silvio Berlusconi's People of Freedom Party-led center-right alliance at 29.2%. To stay in power, first place Bersani would need to form a coalition with either Berlusconi or Grillo, both of whom are expected to reject the austerity packages demanded by German and international lenders. Without these measures, there is concern that Italy, one of the EU's Largest economies could see its debt crisis spread to other European countries. If no majority government can be formed, fresh parliamentary elections would be called for May. That comes to us from the Daily Mail. It was nine years ago, on February 29, 2004, when U.S. forces, with the assistance of Canada, converged on Haitian President Jean-Bertrand Aristide's presidential palace and forcibly removed him from power. The action resulted in a puppet regime being installed, which has acted in concert with U.S. and Canadian interests at the expense of the Haitian people's institutions. On the occasion of this anniversary, the Global Research News Hour chose to examine the context of the coup and relations in particular with Canada. Following is a con conversation with a longtime observer and activist. 
Joining me right now is uh, one of the coordinators of the Canada-Haiti Action Network. His name is Roger Annis, and he has gone on fact-finding missions to Haiti. I um, welcome you to uh, our show, Roger Annis. Oh, uh, thanks. It's good to be with you. Okay. Now, I, I wanted to, uh, first of all, just to go over it, uh, Canada, it was Canada, the United States, and France that were involved militarily on February 29th, 2004, in that palace coup in which um, the uh, President Aristide was actually removed from power. Um, do, you, do you want to maybe just go over some of the, the lead-up that, that led us to that point? Sure. It was an especially tragic development for the Haitian people because this was the second overthrow of an elected government in Haiti in in the past uh, 13 years. The first coup, an extremely violent one, was in 1991. That removed the same president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, seven months after his first election in the year 1990. So 2004, once again, we had a rerun. The difference this time was that uh, after his return to power following the first coup, President Aristide had abolished the Haitian army. And so the second coup was conducted by paramilitaries, Haitian paramilitaries, many of whom had been in the abolished army. They had been able to operate with impunity from bases in the Dominican Republic over the preceding couple of years. Uh, They had received essential military and financial backing from the United States, and also from Haiti's economic elite. And then the intervention that you mentioned by the U.S., Canada, and France kind of came at the decisive moment when the paramilitaries had arrived uh, at the um, uh, entrances to Port-au-Prince. They wouldn't have been able to take the city, Port-au-Prince, the city of two-plus million people. Uh, President Aristide had been elected in the year 2000 with a very, very strong majority and was trying to carry out policies to benefit the uh, poor majority in Haiti. And so... Uh, it was the decisive intervention of the United States, first of all, in essentially kidnapping uh, the president, his his wife, and uh, their political entourage and removing them from the country. And then in the days following, France, the United States, Canada f- flew uh, soldiers into the country to consolidate this overthrow and essentially open up the port city of Port-au-Prince to the uh, paramilitaries who, who came in. And then a, a non-elected, appointed regime was put into place that uh, ruled Haiti for uh, the following two years after that. President Aristide remained in exile for uh, seven years. It was only able to return uh, to the country in the year 2011 from exile in South Africa. He, his wife, and, and their children. And not just the, the president, Aristide, but there were also a lot of other politicians who were uh, imprisoned for length, long periods of time. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the, the, the coup in 2004 is often focused uh, on President Aristide, necessarily so. But in fact, this was a coup that overthrew essentially every institution of elected government in Haiti, the legislature, the Senate, the municipal governments. This had very serious consequences for the country in the two years that followed. Uh, for example, in uh, incapacity and ability to deal with natural disasters that struck. Hurricane Jen that struck the city of Ganaive in the year in September 2004 killed 3,000 people, uh, largely due to the lack of civil preparedness because <laughs> there there was no government anywhere in the country. It was uh, yeah, it was a real real body blow to the entire body politic of the Haitian people. So what we had at that time was uh, the, the forces of, of democracy in terms of the the. Uh, uh, you know, representing the real representation of the people running up against 
certain foreign interests in that uh, island. Is that yeah, this was really a continuation um, of, of a 25-year struggle for uh, democracy and social justice by the Haitian people. There was a popular uprising that had overthrown the uh, family tyranny uh, of Jean-Claude Duvalier in 1986, and he fled, was forced to flee the country. And it took a struggle even then. It was another four years before uh, the Haitian people were able to consolidate a national election and elect Aristide and his movement to office for the first time. Uh, so... You know that that struggle has uh, continued. the The U.S. and increasingly uh, the U.S. and Europe, I should say, and increasingly Canada, have simply not been willing to let the Haitian people uh, e- elect uh, socially progressive governments. Every time the Haitian people have done that, then there's been this terrific interference that's come in to uh, either uh, weaken and enfeeble the national government or even overthrow it. In, in two cases. And really, this policy continues today, three years after the earthquake. Uh, the main reason why the, res- the response to the earthquake was so inadequate and remains so is that the Haitian people have been prevented from exercising their political sovereignty and having a government in place that could respond to a natural disaster on the scale of the earthquake that happened in January 2010. Now, what about organizations like CETA? And uh, the various NGOs, uh, progressive groups like uh, the Alternatives and uh, the Development and Peace, I think that it might come as a, a shock to many Canadians that these groups whose ambitions are, are not generally associated with overthrowing democracies, but how, how, how should we assess their involvement in terms of this uh, uh, reversal of the fortunes of the Haitian people. Yeah, it should be a pretty critical and harsh assessment. Uh, Haiti has been a certain canary in the coal mine for uh, very negative trends that have happened in the world of non-governmental organizations and of of, uh, charities. And that is that uh, these organizations have allowed themselves to become partners in imperialism, in many cases, they've bought into the notion uh, that uh, they're there to supplement and follow the lead of mili- forms of military and p- political intervention. It's getting more explicit all the time. It's now formal Canadian government policy as of uh, November of last year that the purpose, the main principal purpose of Canadian foreign aid is to assist Canadian businesses in conducting their business abroad. It's that frank and... Uh, and, and, and brutal, the, the language and the policy as it's set out. Now, in the preceding years, it's not been that uh, blunt and frank, but in practice, in the case of Haiti, you had on the one hand a national government that was trying to recuperate all of the social services that people in Canada would normally associate with those of a national government, health care, education setting out guidelines for economic policy, environmental protection. All these things in in Haiti had been, um, by hook or by crook, by design, uh, pushed out of the capacities of the national government to exercise and increasingly into the hands of the NGOs. And this was one of the functions of the the embargo on aid that was levied against uh, the second uh, government of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, the government that was elected in the year 2000. As of that election aid and assistance to the government was cut off and it was redirected towards uh, 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 the NGO and, and charity world. And so this this really, this really process had set up a, uh, a very uh, sharp political confrontation between the Aristide government on the one hand and, and the NGOs, uh, many, sorry, of the NGOs, I should 
qualify here that you know there certainly are uh, other NGOs that are doing very important work in Haiti and uh, and uh, deserve our, our appreciation and respect for that. But much of the large NGOs bought into this um, uh, framework that was established by the uh, uh, the big powers. And then, to our great shock and surprise, when the coup d'état happened in 2004, we found that many NGOs that we had considered to be progressive and doing uh, good things in the world, in fact, had backed the overthrow of the Aristide government. And so, uh, you know, we've been through a long process of reflection now uh, since that time at looking what has happened in, in the world of NGOs and charities that things could uh, uh, come to that. And, uh, yeah, it's been a quite a negative political evolution. There's a new book published last year by two Canadians, which is a very, very important book in this regard. It's called Paved with Good Intentions. And it traces this as an evolution where we've come to this, where NGOs can actually become uh, increasingly just tools of foreign policy by the uh, uh, by the big power economic interests in the capitalist countries. Now, um, what, what we've heard about the uh, the role of the police in terms of like training the the forces down in uh, in Haiti. Um, do we have reliable uh, assessments of the the negative impacts of these, this police training on the overall situation? Yeah, we do. The um, the the police is, and then previously when there was a Haitian army, the um, uh, the military training was really geared to. Um, maintaining the status quo in Haiti, teaching the methods of policing to a police force with the expectation that these police forces would 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 essentially you know uh, uh, practice in in such a way that uh, all of the economic inequalities that are so prevalent in Haiti would be would go unchallenged. That's the kind of policing uh, that the RCMP in Canada, for example, wants. Just as in Canada itself, your your role as a citizen in Canada is to obey the law, regardless of how unjust. Uh, and, and uh, socially unequal though those laws could be. And that's the kind of um, uh, police training that's uh, going on in Haiti. And also we should mention penal training as well. Corrections Canada has had a long presence in Haiti, supposedly in training Haiti in the uh, methods of uh, running penal institutions. Well, when you look at the um, <clears throat> the justice system and the penal institution uh, today in Haiti, and it's remained largely unchanged uh, since 2004 and also since the earthquake, you find there are, for example, um, prevented detention uh, rates in the prisons of about 80%. In Haiti, preventive detention means that the prisoner in question has never seen a judge, has never actually been tried and found guilty of anything, but they're in the prison, they stay there because the justice system doesn't uh, function or doesn't want to function. The justice system is not getting the funding necessary so that judges can actually perform their, their work, whatever the reasons may, uh, may be. Um, the policing in- inadequacies really came into play after the uh, earthquake when uh, the problems of, of sexual violence and assault against women became uh, significant because of the you know the, the the earthquake shall we say in social life that had broken down the barriers of, of sort of social cohesion and protection of uh, women and girls in particular so the Haitian people turned to the police naturally to be a line of defense against uh, sexual assault and violence to apply the law in that regard and found that, lo and behold, the police actually had very little training in this regard, had no procedures, were really not even conscious that their role as police was to arrest people accused of sexual violence, for example, make sure that they got a a trial. Well, it turns out in Canada we haven't had uh, a situation that much different in the north of the uh, country, and we've just had a report last week by Human Rights Watch in British Columbia, a bombshell of a report, saying that 
uh, Aboriginal women in the north of British Columbia have been, who have been victims of crimes are finding that uh, they cannot get uh, support, they cannot get the kind of legal support from the police. In fact, the police themselves have been implicated in acts of violence and sexual violence against women. That was a very harsh condemnation of the uh, policing methods of the RCMP in northern British Columbia. So I guess it's no surprise that if the RCMP can't uh, can't be relied upon to take care of issues of uh, sexual violence against women in northern British Columbia, they're not really going to be able to do it in Haiti either. And uh, boy, there's a lot of research and study that needs to be done on this subject to find out exactly what, what the, what's the RCMP been doing in the past 20 years in Haiti with their police training such that when the earthquake arrives, we find the Haitian police completely unprepared to, uh, to deal with you know, serious issues of sexual violence. I've heard that uh, the, the RCMP, I mean, and their roots, it was essentially an instrument of colonialism that uh, they had to deal with the so-called Indian problem. And I, I'm wondering if, if you see any other analogs between, uh, say, the, the Canadian, um, the indigenous peoples of Canada and the people of Haiti. Yeah, that's, that's an important um, point about the origin of the RCMP. It, was, it began as the Royal Northwest uh, uh, Police that were one of the instruments of the conquest of the territories of the indigenous peoples of the of the West, gosh, we see a lot of parallels between uh, Haiti today and the conditions in Canada. This really jumped to our attention last year when the uh, struggle—sorry, uh, more than a year ago—when the struggle at Attawapiskat in Ontario broke out, which is, you know, first and foremost uh, a struggle uh, uh, for adequate housing, which came into exploded into national headlines in October of 2011. So we watched the news and learned more about the conditions in Attawapiskat and the other. Uh, uh, indigenous territories in the north of Canada and throughout the country that are not, don't have adequate housing, don't have clean water systems, don't have proper sanitation treatment uh, and disposal systems. And this in spite of like inclement weather. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, lo and behold, this is exactly this. These failures in Canada to provide these basic services, human rights is what they are. They're not just services, they're human rights. Exactly the same story in Haiti since the earthquake. It's been a massive failure in Haiti to build new housing, uh, provide adequate temporary shelter for people left uh, homeless by the earthquake. Of course, there's been a cholera epidemic in Haiti that's killed 8,000 people, which is, uh, you know, quite simply a result of the failure over the years of the uh, big powers in Haiti to assist the Haitian government and the Haitian public health authorities in creating clean water uh, delivery systems and proper sanitation uh, treatment systems. Boy, the parallels are really, yeah, really striking. Our, the indigenous population of Canada, are, are you have higher rates of these sorts of diseases than, than the, the rest of the country. Yeah, I mean, rates in the north of Canada sometimes that approach, uh, you know, the con- difficult conditions in Haiti itself. And I'm also noticing there's a tendency, like we, we saw with Julian Fantino, the... Uh, the uh, CETA minister, essentially blaming the Haitians for their not being able to get their act together in spite of all this aid coming in. And that sort of parallels, uh, you know, some of the perception we have of indigenous peoples not being able to, uh, they're getting all this money from the government and like what's happening with it. That's a very good point. Boy, that was so striking, the, again, the commonality in his Fantino statements, who, by the way, is a career policeman. Imagine putting a career policeman in charge of Canada's foreign aid programs. Doesn't that really kind of sum up the, uh, the philosophy and the ap- approach of the government? Yeah, yeah, he said in uh, in uh, kind of off-the-cuff uh, 
Well, he began saying it last November after his uh, trip to Haiti, and then it became very explicit in an off-the-cuff interview that he gave the end of December that, yeah, these what's wrong with these Haitians? We threw all this money at them, and they can't even get their act together. <laughs> you know, which is a complete 180-degree turn of the reality in Haiti, which is, no, the Haitians didn't get the earthquake relief money. It was brought to Haiti and then, uh, and then spent by um, the international governments and the big international aid organizations. If only the Haitian people and if only their government had gotten uh, a significant part of the earthquake aid funding, then maybe things could be uh, a lot further along. So, yeah, this is very much a case of the... Uh, um, the, the the pot calling the kettle black, so to speak. It's you know it's it's been the primarily the responsibility of Canada and the big powers, uh, the failures in Haiti since the earthquake. But the minister's trying to deflect attention away from that reality. So if if the essence of of Canada's relationship with Haiti is essentially one of of corporate uh, manipulation exploitation, uh, how can things be changed? I mean, where where does the the change have to begin? Yeah, I think it's on two fronts. One is, of course, the Haitian people themselves have to get organized and take matters into their own hands, and they are doing that uh, despite the very, very harsh and difficult conditions that prevail after the earthquake. We have housing rights movements that are active in Haiti. We have women's rights organizations that have been dealing with some of the emergencies that they've been dealing with uh, in the uh, uh, camps of earthquake uh, survivors. Uh, we have very significant pressure operating on the United Nations so it be accountable for the cholera epidemic that it brought to Haiti through its own reckless criminal uh, negligence and, and uh, uh, recklessness. Other uh, human rights organizations that are um, you know, fighting to improve the conditions in prisons to get a justice, justice system that functions. Peasants are getting organized in, in uh, Haiti so that they can... Uh, uh, they can make <clears throat> make a livelihood but have a government that's responsive to their needs. So it is happening in, in Haiti. It's still slow in coming because the conditions are difficult. But then the other part of the uh, picture of what needs to be done is that we here in Canada have to become more, um, uh, more of a factor in all this. Uh, we're not yet uh, organized uh, well enough to be exercising pressure on not just on the government but on the opposition members of parliament who are largely silent. The opposition members are largely silent on the issue of, uh, of Haiti. There had been a huge disappointment that we don't have uh, any advocates for Haiti in the, in the Parliament of Canada right now. Mm. Uh, unlike the situation in the U.S. Congress, where there is a pretty good body of uh, members of Congress in the U.S. who are prepared to speak up on issues of social uh, development programs, political rights. Uh, there's been a, a series of very good statements by uh, uh, members of Congress in the United States um, uh, in, in defense of uh, the Haitian people, and we need to uh, uh, create circumstances in Canada where we have something similar happening in the parliament as well as the extra-parliamentary movement of solidarity that we need. Okay. Um, and I guess another component as well, because you've been active for a very long time, and uh, as you know, there, there's silence on this question when it comes to mainstream media coverage. Yeah, and it's unfortunately it's not uh, getting better. The, th- the the coverage around the time of the third anniversary of the earthquake was, was disappointing for us. There's been a real drop-off in uh, attention, um, I would say, pretty much across the board. You know, a few good articles here. There's a writer at Canadian Press, Andy Blatchford, who's done some, uh, continues to do some good writing. But we haven't seen... Um, uh, the same attention, uh, for example, the Toronto Star was prepared to do even two years after the earthquake. CBC has been a, you know, none of the, not a single one of the, the main national radio programs did a story. I'm talking about well-known programs to Canadians, the current, as it happens. Um, 
no no uh, stories from them, and you know a couple of pretty half baked reports that, on television that I caught, and again not even on the news network uh, on the main network, but on the uh, the news network. So um, you know we continue to complain about this to to journalists, to editors, um, but uh, and and we need to do more of that, and we need more Canadians to speak up on that as well, because we're really seriously being underserved by our media on uh, on Haiti. It's just the fact that you know Canadians could donate hundreds of millions of dollars for earthquake relief, funds like that could be matched by the government. A large Canadian air organizations could go down to Haiti and claim to have done stuff, and nobody in the media is going down to to Haiti and looking at what all that money has produced or not is you know a pretty pretty sad comment on the state of our own media. So uh, that's another canary in the coal mine for Canadians to pay attention to that uh, we suffer as a result of that, not just Haitians, but our own democracy and our own expectations of, of life and of society suffer when we don't have a media that's active, vigilant, critical, outspoken. Well, hopefully this uh, independent this is one of the uh, independent media that can help uh, remedy that uh, problem. So exactly, and so important for that very reason. Well, Roger Annis, I want to thank you very much for sharing these insights with us on this uh, um, tragic anniversary. Well, thanks, uh, and thanks for uh, for your interest. It's uh, it's much appreciated. Roger Annis is a coordinator with the Canada Haiti Action Network. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partner radio stations across the country. We're also podcast at the website for the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca. A lot of unflattering attention has been drawn to Canada for its development of the oil sands in Alberta's north. Some of the biggest climate rallies in history have taken place in Washington and across North America recently, intended to discourage the development of pipelines to transport the product of the sands, bitumen, to ports in the United States. The criticism has generally come from an environmental perspective. However, a new report from the Polaris Institute and the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives promotes an economic argument which extols concerns about exchange rates, trade productivity, and the overall distortion of Canada's national economy, which would put Canada at an overall economic disadvantage. The name of the study is The Bitumen Cliff, Lessons and Challenges of Bitumen Mega Developments for Canada's Economy in an Age of Climate Change. Brendan Haley is one of the study's authors. He is a graduate student from Carleton University and joins us from Halifax. So, Brendan Haley, thank you for joining us. Yeah, great to be with you, Michael. Okay, now, first of all, I, I think that um, one of the aspects of this uh, whole discussion is that it seems somewhat, at first glance, counterintuitive, the idea that uh, our this abundance of a coveted natural resource could actually end up being uh, hurtful economically for Canada. Could, could you provide us some, some background about that? Um, sure. I mean, what we wanted to do in this report, is, as we state, I think, from the outset, is really wanted to look at some of the full economic implications of the current boom in in the oil sands or the bitumen sands. Um, and not just the short-term economic growth, but really some of the long-term structural implications for the economy. And uh, really, we feel that we're over-concentrating our economic policies on one economic trajectory, which is oil export and the bulk of that new product or new growth is being taken up by, by oil sands or bitumen. And, you know, when you're creating an undiversified economy, that is an economy very vulnerable to change and also an economy very resistant um, to transitions. 
and uh, this is, and, and inevitably things in an economy do change. And uh, the vulnerability to this change, it's not a new phenomenon. It's one that has been shown in um, Canadian resource-based economies uh, like fur, wheat, cod. You know, these are what um, Canadian economic historian Harold Innes called staples products. And if we look back to Canadian economic history, there is this pattern of resource lock-in where what seemed like a really good thing in the short term actually didn't uh, turn out so well. Um, and he t- talked about this uh, this tendency towards a staples trap, um, this tendency towards uh, resource lock-in, where you know when inevitably the economy does change because of new technologies, because of new consumer demands uh, at a much more global level, um, those uh, transitions or those that, that disruption that occurs on overly resource-dependent economies can be you know quite quite painful. Um, so we're saying, uh, you know, if, if we want to build an economy that's much more resilient, that's much more um, less resistant to change, and much more actually open to the change we really have to make, which is the transition towards a green economy, uh, then we need new types of economic policies that essentially recognize that we need economic strategies that will counteract this, this lock-in tendency that we see. Hmm. Now, I know you mentioned Harold Innes. Uh, he, uh, in his book, The Fur Trade in Canada, uh, he uh, mentioned, the, he brought up in his conclusion that the, uh, the present dominion emerged not in spite of geography, but because of it. And uh, I, I mean, could you uh, maybe talk a little bit about how uh, we've overcome that, uh, you know, that, that, that geographical um, element and, and somehow moved away from, uh, at least for a time, away from that uh, resource-driven uh, economy and, and, more, and diversified more? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think just uh, what, what Ennis was really talking about there and in my mind is, is that he, you know, he said that actually that these different periods of staple growth, and there he was really, he was talking about the fur trade, actually really affected our political institutions, right? And he says that actually if you look at, you know, Canada's borders, they tend to follow, you know, the transportation routes of the fur trade, you know, you know, followed. And, and, you know, and he explained, you know, that a lot of our political institutions were actually quite shaped by um, some of the economic institutions at the time. And so, you know, today... Um, uh, you know, we're seeing the same thing. Our political institutions are actually being quite shaped by um, our political leaders um, who are, you know, think that the oil sands is really the only economic trajectory um, we can have. But as you've mentioned, that is actually a very recent phenomenon. It was only really sort of after 2000 when we started doubling down again on uh, resource products. In fact, you know, in the 20th century, Canada did um, develop a, a much more balanced economy where um, we had, you know, a, a good balance between uh, the manufacturing sector and, and different types of resource sectors. Um, you know, we started, um, uh, you know, building high technology products, becoming more innovative. Um, so, so this is actually, you know, it feels like we're sort of going back to the future um, as you look at at the, the uh, patterns that we've been seeing the last 10, 13 years, and that's really why. We've written this report. We show some of those patterns in terms of um, going back towards a, a resource-dependent economy. Mm. I'm, I'm trying to understand, like maybe some of the the forces that that are in play that are, are 
throwing us in this direction? Is it is a result? I mean, I think NAFTA, for example, came up in your uh, paper. Um, could you, and, and in what ways have NAFTA and, and other uh, policy I- initiatives pushed us in this direction of, uh, uh, of increased reliance on these resources? Yeah, you know, I mean, if you look at, you know, where we've been successful in uh, building an economy that's much more diversified, um, having some successes in terms of technological development and innovation, you know, in Canada or I think even arguably in the world, you know, it's often happened because of some form of, of government intervention and often a government creating those sort of almost niche spaces where new learning and new technology can can uh, can 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 start can start to develop. So certainly some of the trade agreements like NAFTA makes that more difficult because instead of um, allowing for those those spaces where countries if they act strategically can foster new types of innovation and, and, and new products, um, it, it pushes Canada more towards its its sort of short-term static comparative advantage, which is uh, resources. And, and during the debates about NAFTA, uh, certainly a lot of people provided that warning. They said that, uh, you know, moving towards free trade at this time would um, lock Canada into, into a resource dependency uh, even more. So so there's there are... Uh, um, you know, rules or on after that that are that that make it make it more difficult. But I don't think it's it's an e- inevitable. And, and the, the, you know, this is uh, certainly I think the biggest trap we have is almost a, a mental one, which is a mentality that the only economic path available for Canada is in the extraction of the the oil sands or, or some type of, of resource dependency. And in fact, I think there's. There are lots of avenues in Canada where uh, we can build different types of industries and we can have a more diverse economy. It only requires, I think, a recognition that uh, we actually need a government strategy to do that. Um, so certainly uh, those play play a role, but, but our message in the report is not to say we should throw up our hands and give up. We actually think there's lots of opportunities to... Uh, to have a different type of economic strategy. I, I see in your report one uh, bar graph that, that really struck me, and, and that's the whole, when you show the, how the increase in oil exports or oil product, ec- petroleum exports, versus the uh, decrease in other sorts of exports. Uh, could you maybe explain how it is that the more we rely on this uh, Petroleum-based uh, economy, this resource-based economy, the, the 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 more other areas like uh, uh, you know manufacturing in particular seems to decline. Are we talking about this uh, Dutch disease that uh, Thomas Mulcair has become famous for uh, citing? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that that doesn't seem to be talked about is that you know we 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 almost brag about how much we're exporting uh, the oil sands, but in fact, um, you know, we have a current account deficit right now <laughs> and and so as you've mentioned the you know the even though the the oil sands exports are are uh, are quite high um, the exports in a series of other industries and, and most concerning uh, manufacturing have, have been quite lower so yeah there's been this debate about Dutch disease and and, and Dutch disease is kind of this phenomenon that you know, this higher dollar that that results is impacting um, manufacturing and, and there's a debate with respect to, to what degree that is happening. Um, 
but when we talk about, we open it up a bit more to this idea of the staples trap. And in fact, the staples trap idea goes much deeper, where this Dutch disease phenomenon, where uh, a higher dollar uh, makes it more difficult for manufacturers, is certainly part of that. Um, but fundamentally, uh, the staples trap, I think, opens it up more towards this being a problem of a lack of innovation um, in the Canadian economy, uh, not being able to grapple with economic change. And, and so the, the issue with the manufacturing sector is not solely um, that they're feeling pressure with a high dollar, but in fact, we don't have a manufacturing sector strategy in, in this country right now. Uh, nor do we have a, a strategy towards transitioning toward the green, a green economy. We solely have a strategy for the resource sector, and the strategy seems to be to essentially gut uh, environmental regulations uh, as fast as possible. So, you know, it, it's actually a, a political problem as well as an economic problem. Hmm. Now, are, are there lessons that can be learned from this when it comes to other uh, uh, other sorts of? Uh, primary uh, resource development, say hydroelectric power in, uh, in Manitoba and Quebec? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. That's actually what I'm uh, researching now. I mean, I think uh, it's not, certainly we are not saying, you know, uh, even we've been accused of this recently that, you know, re- all resources are bad and we should stop using them. It's actually the strategy you develop, you know, in their use to develop a more resilient type of economy. And in a lot of ways, I think actually Quebec in particular is a bit of a counterexample to that. I mean, they had very similar um, uh, characteristics as traditional staples economy. They had um, hydroelectric dams that were quite far away from centers. Uh, oftentimes those large fixed costs we've seen in, in other periods of staples development have really locked in uh, those economies towards only producing that type of product. But, you know, with hydroelectricity, because of its particular characteristics, but I think more importantly, because there was a deliberate strategy in Quebec for, you know, technological innovation, Hydro-Quebec became real innovators in long-distance transmission. They're one of the only utilities to have a, a um, research and development facility and actually, you know, so from the hydroelectric development, they're actually doing a whole bunch of really other interesting um, things. And they've spun off other sectors, such as consulting engineering. And more recently, you know, I think arguably they've, the hydroelectricity is actually a bit of an asset for them, um, both organizationally and just physically, um, because it's low-carbon electricity for electric vehicles and, and other types of green industries. So, in fact, that's that's an example where the resource staple could actually help us maybe transition toward the green economy and help us diversify. And it's because of, I think, a a strategy in Quebec that was saying that we're going to use this resource to its maximum advantage. So what uh, kinds of suggestions are are you then going to uh, promote to policymakers as a way of uh, avoiding this uh, staples trap? Yeah, I mean, one one thing... uh, if you recognize the problem as, as as a staples trap, or as we say later, a, a carbon trap in terms of the environmental aspects of it, um, it's a problem fundamentally of structural lock-in. Um, you're going to think about the solutions a little bit a little bit differently. Um, for instance, on the on the environmental side, um, what's you know very popular right now, and which everyone agrees with, I think, including us in our report, 
is some sort of market-based solution, such as a carbon price. Um, but certainly if it's a problem of structural lock-in, that is necessary but not sufficient, sufficient because solely those types of market-based solutions um, don't deal with some of the structural lock-in factors, such as you know there's going to be political interests that will resist that type of carbon price. There's a whole bunch of fixed infrastructure that you have to deal with. There's a skills and competency um, sort of matrix or, or, or pattern that we have that, that may not be prepared to go down different types of technological pathways. So, in fact, you can't escape from policies that are going to be more specific with respect to specific technologies, to specific regions, to, to sectors, and really thinking about how to... Um, steer each of those sectors, each of those regions towards a green economy, for instance, um, you know, and for the Canadian economy as a whole to, to also, you know, actually think about the diversification strategies, the manufacturing strategies um, in, in each of those sectors. So one thing we talk about is this possibility of having sector, sector development councils, um, having the federal government and, and regional governments actually thinking about the trajectory of the country and the need to promote diversity instead of simply saying, you know, it's all left up to the market, and if the market chooses resources, so be it. It must be the right way to, must be the right path. I've been speaking with Brendan Haley. He is one of the study, the authors of the study, The Bitumen Cliff, Lessons and Challenges of Bitumen Mega Developments for Canada's Economy in an Age of Climate Change, which is available from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives at policyalternatives.ca. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Brendan. Thank you. On last week's show, we heard part one of an interview with former Georgia Congresswoman and U.S. presidential candidate Cynthia McKinney about some of the forces that impede real democracy in America. In part two, we explore the presidency of America's first African-American president, Barack Obama, and its impacts on popular struggle for social and racial justice. Talking about your association with the Democratic Party, I mean, you, you eventually completely gave up on them. You know, so it well, be... I, actually, the, it, it, the the other way around, the Democratic Party completely gave up, gave up on me. You know, I was anti-war, and the Democratic Party was not anti-war. Of course, you know, you're not supposed to talk about Israel. Uh, you, you certainly can't talk about them as, as a little uh, bad kid. So... <laughs> um, uh, I, I hit two at least, uh, what, what they call the third rail, I guess the third and the fourth rails of politics that you're not supposed to touch. And I touched them both just because I'm a peace person. And when I see something that's not contributing to the overall health of our political, social, or economic system, that I'm going to say something about it. And I was elected by the people to represent those positive values that can move our system forward. And um, But clearly that wasn't um, something that was desired by the powers that be, and I suffered uh, all of the, uh, how can one say, the opprobrium that was available um, to be visited upon people who dare to express a different point of view. 
Well, I felt it, and I felt it in public, out loud, in front of <laughs> in front of the world. I, I understand, like in the United States, uh, there's been, uh, I guess, since the election of 2000, that there had been some hostility directed towards from some, you know supposedly progressive people against Ralph Nader for running against Al Gore and thereby supposedly splitting the vote and allowing Bush to come to power. And, and so that kind of hounded him a bit in 2004. Were you, did you find people sort of uh, you know, critical of your decision to run against Barack Obama because we need to stop that horrible John McCain from getting elected? Uh, did, did you experience some of that on the campaign trail? really experienced that and that was for one reason and one reason alone and that is that the uh, support for candidate Obama was so overwhelming that the uh, vision of those who um, uh, had previously been sort of independent thinkers um, independent voters uh, was blurred and the vision was completely blurred, so that in the scheme of things, it was very clear after a while that the Green Party nomination going to another black person really was not going to split the black vote, wasn't going to split the progressive community. Uh, none of that was really at stake. Okay. Now, on this program, we spoke with... Uh Jared Ball, Dr. Jared Ball, on the topic of, uh, um, you know, Barack Obama and whether or not he was uh, supposedly the lesser of two evils. And uh, in response to that, he pointed to something that Glenn Ford of Black Agenda Report, <clears throat> the way he put it, that he's not the lesser of two evils, but the more effective of two evils. In the, in the idea that uh, dissent against this power establishment is harder to manifest with Barack Obama there, even though he largely represents the same agenda. Would you be in agreement with that, or do you think that's a little harsh? Oh, I absolutely agree with, with everything that Glenn Ford writes <laughs> just about. Um, Glenn Ford is one of the most politically astute observers on the scene today. And um, so I take what he rights and, and his thoughts and his analysis and his philosophy, I take all of that very seriously. So when Glenn Ford says that um, Barack Obama is the more, uh, how does he put it? The um, more effective of two evils. The more effective evil, uh, he actually has hit upon something. He's absolutely correct because there's a, the, 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 progressive, I put that in quotation marks, community, has disappeared. The so-called liberals have disappeared. The liberal agenda, progressive agenda, has disappeared. The reason that it's disappeared is because we've got a black man in the White House who, uh, who supposedly represents the values of progressive people, but honestly doesn't and uh, has um, continued to commit war crimes and to cover up for the crimes of the Bush administration. Barack Obama recently gave his State of the Union address. There was uh, a lot of uh, you know, sentiments expressed about uh, climate change and 
you know, creating jobs and, and bringing troops home from Afghanistan and uh, also uh, sentiments about uh, gun control. Uh, I, I'm wondering if, if there's anything in his inaugural or excuse, his State of the Union address or his inaugural address for that matter, anything that he said or did not say that, that really stuck with you. I don't, even in my personal life, I don't judge people by what they say. <laughs> but even more so for those people who um, are elected officials with positional authority to make public policy, I judge them by their policy. And that's, what they, that's the, the uh, gauge against which they should be judged because they have a positional authority to implement public policy or to make public policy on behalf of the rest of us. And so politics is not a popularity contest. It's not a beauty contest. It's not a, you know, who wears the best clothes contest. It's not who can give the best speeches. It's about what people do. Politics is about power and about how that power is wielded on behalf of or in subversion of the will of the people. He, he's you know picked his cabinet members, and uh, I mean I've heard the saying that structure is strategy in slow motion. So um, based on what he's done in the past, and, and based on who he's chosen uh, in the present, I mean John Brennan and others, what would you project would be his uh, policy orientation going forward? Well, what it has been in the past, yeah, and that's <laughs> war and more war and. And uh, the pivot to Africa is absolutely, uh, it's shameful, it's scandalous that U.S. drones would be flying over African skies, dropping bombs and killing African people. Shameful. And the so-called pivot to, the, pivot to Asia um, is um, uh, equally as shameful with the anticipated destabilizations of of um, Asian countries. I'm looking quite closely at what's going on in Malaysia right now. And the Malaysians had to deport an Australian elected official for interfering in their upcoming election. I mean, this is ridiculous. And, and you know, this leading from behind, at the end of the day, when... It's U.S. money or it's U.S. soldiers or it's U.S. pilots or uh, it's U.S. airplanes that are transporting the pilots of other people or, or um, the soldiers of other people. The bottom line is leading from behind is, is just a ruse to obscure the fact that the United States is participating in and leading efforts that would be anathema to the base of the very president who's carrying out these policies. Cynthia McKinney, given your roots in the civil rights struggle and uh, looking at America today, this being Black History Month in particular, I'm wondering if you would care to give your own, uh, you know, brief state of the union, state of the current uh, union as a, uh, as, as you would express it, how, how do you see the current state of affairs in America, especially compared to uh, 40, 50 years ago? I would put it this way, that 
we've come a long way, baby, but we got a long way to go. And there has been a, a modicum of progress, but it's only been felt in pockets. And it's a sad state of affairs when the racial disparities in the United States in some instances are worse today than they were at the time of the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So uh, we can have symbolic leadership, but uh, what we need is substantive change. How do we achieve that substantive change? I know you've been working at it within Congress. You tried and, and, and failed to, achieve, to, to uh, run for president. Is the system fundamentally broken, or is there some way we can achieve change through that system? How, how, what do you suggest that we do to, to achieve substantive change? The system isn't broken. The system exists as it is because it benefits certain individuals. And those individuals then use their power over the system and inside the system to continue the system. And what we need are more people to wake up every morning, as I do, with resistance on their minds. And for them to say, what can I do today to put a spanner in this system that does not benefit me? That's what we need, more people with resistance on their minds. And is uh, what about media? Is that uh, not also part of the problem? Well, you know, media is a part of the system. The system is a financial, public relations, prison, military, intelligence. You know, the complex is um, across the spectrum of life. And so that's why we can have a broad-based resistance. Uh, we need lawyers, we need journalists, we need activists, we need peace people, we need politicians, we need economists, we need doctors. I mean, uh, whatever the sphere of human interaction is, we need people who are willing to say, today I am going to make a difference. I am going to change the system so that people, more people are benefited by the system than are hurt by it. Cynthia McKinney, it's very well said. Um, I want to thank you very much for uh, participating in this discussion. It's uh, certainly a, a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk again. Yes, we certainly can talk again, and I would encourage people to visit my Facebook page. My son gave me a 50-minute Facebook lesson. So my Facebook page, there are many of them out there, but there's only one that's official, and that's Cynthia McKinney Official. Okay, Cynthia McKinney Official on that's Facebook. That's right. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you, Cynthia McKinney. That was activist, former congresswoman, and U.S. presidential candidate Cynthia McKinney. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering stations across the country. We are now also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.